0: decide should I dance or should I die
1: can Hey
2: you are listening to miserytourism.com's misery movies podcast um podcast where we're all miserable and we talk about movies. I never know how to start these fucking things, but and I've actually been given very strict instructions for this podcast not to allow it to go on for three and a half rambly hours, so we're going to try to keep this under an hour and keep this introduction short. I am William, or Will, whatever, who gives a fuck, and I'm joined by, as always, Misery Tourism co-founder Rudy. Hey yeah. Mis- uh, writer and frequent misery tourism contributor Sarah.
0: Hello.
2: Poet and one-time misery tourism contributor Mika.
0: Hello.
2: Artist uh, and frequent podcast guest Brandon. <laughs> hello,
1: hello. Hey,
2: Brandon. So today we are going to be uh, we are going to be talking about Gus Van Sant's film Elephant. I want to say Gus Van Sant's Elephant just so. Wait, that didn't rhyme. I was going to say just so it rhymes, but that actually does (laughs) not rhyme.
3: (laughs) Um,
2: Yeah, but we're talking about Gus Van Sant's Elephant today, um, which is, I think, perhaps the prototypical school shooter film. As usual, um, if you've listened to previous podcasts, we like to split the episodes into two halves. The first half Uh, is going to be spoiler free to the best of our ability. So if you want to listen to a general discussion about the film before you watch it, you can get away with listening to the first half an hour. We'll try our best not to ruin the damn thing for you. Uh, Then we will very quickly each give our little micro review of the film. And then the second half we'll dive into spoiler territory. We are going to talk do more of a deep dive into the film and talk about individual scenes that really fascinated us, talk about the endri- ending, excuse me, so on and so forth. That said, uh, Buck, let's talk about the film. Does anyone have something that they really wanted to talk about like right off the bat here? Rudy, I know that you are uh, in a time sensitive situation here. You're going to have to leave in a few minutes and- yeah. So I want to hear, what do you want to say about this film?
3: Uh, I just want to say that um, the way it's filmed, the cinematography, specifically all the long shots and that stuff, I don't know if that's a just fansant thing, but uh, I really enjoyed that.
2: Yeah, yeah, me too. There's a lot of really, as you said, long shots here, moments where the camera will just follow an individual character while they walk through the school. For yeah, what- I, think
3: that's, I think that's perfect for school shooting territory because uh, you get the whole view of the environment, which I think is important to school shootings, you know, and that it's almost like uh, watching a media broadcast of the event afterwards, after the fact. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, the school
2: itself is a huge character, I think, in this film. And I think that's something we definitely have to talk about. But I I agree with you, Rudy. You get a real sense, a really remarkable sense for the geography of the school itself. You know, as the movie goes along, which as you said, is kind of critical um, to a lot of news coverage of school shootings. Like you always get the sense that the shooters set out a map and as they actually do at one point in this film, Mm -hmm. really like got to know the geography of the school before they committed the crime. And this I think replicates that perfectly where to the point where by the time the school shooting actually occurs, you know the school intimately enough that you could almost have committed the shooting yourself, you know? (laughs) but I want to give the rest of you a chance to jump in here on what Rudy's talking about with the long shots and stuff.
0: Um, the, like, the
2: shots were like, it's following behind people, like really,
0: really clinging to them as they walk. Like felt like along with establishing like the, 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 the sense of binality, like how mm-hmm. plotting and slow, it is and how i guess lacking in urgency the shots felt contrasted with the fact that i had already seen the film so like i guess knowing where things are going made it feel like each step of the characters like as they're walking just felt absolutely intense
2: (laughs) yeah yeah absolutely i agree with you there's something remarkable about the way these long shots kind of dilate time. Uh, One of my favorite directors is Tarkovsky, and there's this remarkable thing about the way time works in a Tarkovsky film where you simultaneously feel like this film lasts forever. but You feel while you're watching it as if the film was much longer than its two, two and a half hour running time. But on the other hand, you also feel as if no time has passed. And there's a kind of similar phenomenon, I think, or similar, um, yeah, similar phenomenon happening in this film where you, for one, on one hand, like the entire film is set over the course of a single day, except for a few flashbacks that you get that kind of frame things. So the actual period of time this film is set in is quite short. The film itself is quite short, it's only like, an hour and 20 minutes long. And yet, like, time is dilated so much that this one day seems, because of these slow, long shots, seems to take an eternity, which I think, in addition to, like, getting at that simple idea of, like, when tragedy happens, time slows down and becomes expansive. It also gets at, I think, something about like being an adolescent in high school and feeling like every fucking day is endless, you know, and every, and every moment is an eternity, but yeah. Uh, B-Boy, Sarah, I want to get you in on this too.
1: Yeah. I think that's a great point. There's something, there's a lot to be said for that plotting pace and the tension that it builds and the amount of weight that that kind of tension has when it comes to your perception that's such a valuable, valuable thing. And this, and this film definitely delivers on that. I think Gus Van Sant as a, as a director generally does know how to get that effect done.
2: Mm, Yeah. He last days, uh, which is about the, well, technically it's not about the last days of Kurt Cobain, but fun. It it is, it uses a similar kind of um, sort of meandering slow, Mm -hmm pacing which works there as well uh sarah i want to get you in here and um also guys feel free to interrupt me or each other and to interject if you need to to get in on this conversation
4: the the long shots were definitely the highlight of the film for me because honestly i I thought the acting was atrocious (laughs) (laughs) Really? so i i oh god yeah so i i at least enjoyed the way it was filmed i appreciated Mm. that but the actors were definitely <laughs> not up to par, which I guess they didn't necessarily need to be for this kind of film. But mm-hmm.
1: yeah, yeah. I almost thought that but was I, intentional.
4: Yeah. I wasn't really sure because literally every single actor <laughs> was terrible. And some of the, the the decisions they were making when things were starting to you know, kick off were really c- confusing to me. And I wasn't sure if that was a choice by the director or if that was just the actors kind of freewheeling it.
2: Now, I wonder, I was actually going to ask kind of the same thing that Brandon did, which is, I wonder if, I mean, it could be bad acting. I mean, you're dealing with a situation where you have, um, you know, people playing teenagers who are actual fucking teenagers (laughs) and um, young actors generally tend to be more unskilled, you know? But I'm also wondering if it's not so much the actors as these sort of intentionally superficial characters that they're playing, which I very much yeah. think is a choice here. Like, I think there's something going on here in terms of the way the characters are presented. And this kind of ties in, I think, to the those long shots, which is just, there are so many long shots where a character is presented strictly from behind. You don't see their face, you don't see them emote, you just see their posture and how they're dressed. Like this is a film that's like fundamentally obsessed with like two big things. Like one, how people hold themselves, like just basic like posture and, and positioning and things like that, and also how people dress. And those long shots, really, you can see, like, people's posture, these actors' posture change as they – there are some long shots where someone will go from outside the school, into the school, into the school, outside the school, from outside the school into a classroom or something. You can kind of see them, like, like, go from, like, a kind of false assertive posture to a more submissive one and back and forth, which I think – is really fast and
1: and really doesn't that summarize the high school experience yeah it does you're not you aren't who you are your percept the perception of you is not who you are it's all in how you carry yourself what colors you present it's mm. it's basic animal behavior in a lot of ways and i think that's very very intentional in this case because you look at teenagers teenagers are shitty teenagers are shitty people for the for the overwhelming majority they they judge so quickly just based on outward perception they don't really necessarily always care about what's deeper behind that you know and yeah you'll give credit to the ones now that are trying to get more woke and God, I even hate saying that out loud. (laughs) (laughs) But you have more more attempts from teenagers now to actually look at something deeper than that surface layer. Mm. But especially at the time that Elephant was made and at the time that all this was was really starting to kick off with being in the public eye as far as school shooting and bullying being such a severe issue it was so much more common for that shallow perspective mm-hmm. to really stand out. Yeah. and I think that got captured exquisitely in this movie.
2: And I, I, I swear to God, I'm going to shit. I'm going to let someone else talk here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is, I sometimes feel like, I don't know. I don't want to do a tangent here, but did anyone else watch the like G Jack Peterson debate? And like every time G Jack he was like i'm gonna keep this short and then he goes on a completely like <laughs> weird like extemporaneous tirade where he that he interrupts every three or four minutes to say no 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 i'm almost done <laughs> you know so i i, I do want to take this back to other people but i think you hit the the nail on the head there brandon like that this is a movie about to some degree about like performative role playing and superficiality mm-hmm. and the focus on posture and fashion and and on these shots that are very long but reveal very little like mm-hmm. really gets at that superficiality that the sense of like kids playing at adulthood you know and i think it's i think it's awesome <laughs> but yeah, anyway it's,
1: uh, it's a very effective depersonalization tactic too mm-hmm. I, think, I think oh sorry
0: the scene to me like I, I i noticed what um sarah did too that like i felt like the acting was bad. Like, like at first thought it was like oh this is bad acting and that's all i thought of it and then there's that scene that happens where it almost like peaks and how awkward it gets like or how the you know basically what you said about like performative role playing gets where it's those well, I guess I shouldn't spoil it, but like there's a there's a scene where characters are talking and it sounded literally like they were playing cliches almost like it, mm. but like all like what teenagers thought adults said. Um, so like it, you definitely get that sense of like the characters are like you said, they're playing adult like they're not they're, they're doing what they think mature people do
2: yeah absolutely i i agree with you i wanna i think we're getting near the end of rudy's time here so i want to give him a chance to go fucking off here if he wants to go off on literally anything before he has to leave
3: uh i don't really want to go off on anything Mm -hmm. uh but i just want to say that school shooting films are pretty awesome in general and i think this is so i i'm a connoisseur of school shooting films I feel (laughs) and I'd say that this is probably one of my favorite ones
2: now quickly Um, Rudy while you're on the subject um mm -hmm. what are some of your other favorite school shooting films which ones do you think suck and what do Mm -hmm. you think
3: this one does right um I didn't really like uh let's what is it called let's talk about About we have to talk about Kevin or that was a terrible film yeah I didn't really like that one but I and also, Zero Day, I saw some of, but wasn't really able to finish. Um, and I didn't really like that one either. Uh, and I think, but I think this one, what it does right is it just kind of backs off from, like, either, well, I don't want to say judgmental, because, but that's what it is, really. It backs off from judgment and it lets you see it from, like, the point of view of, uh, of like, in either an, either uh, a, just an observer, you know, not, and it doesn't really make any value judgments about what happens. Um, And I think that's partly, partly in the way it's filmed, Mm. but it's also partially probably in the way uh, uh, what she mentioned about the kind of flat acting that the characters have, like you don't really form any, like any judgments about the characters because they're so kind of flat
2: yeah absolutely i agree with you about we need to talk about kevin mm-hmm. uh yeah. I, we we saw that together i think Rudy. yeah yeah i remember at the end of it you you like <laughs> you like <laughs> the you you like threw down whatever you were holding and you were like you like god damn it school shooters aren't dexter and
3: I, <laughs> yeah i mean, it's, it's I, I mean that,
2: that's right though because i think a lot of movies about school shooting try to do one of two things either a like we need to talk about kevin they mm. try to present the school shooting within like the structure of a more conventional film like mm. that movie kind of hit a cer- certain plot points that every movie like it kind of has every movie right. about violence and tragedy feel like they have to hit
3: yeah, it's like certain beats basically you know certain
2: exactly and yet didn't really offer any kind of psychological insight into the perpetrator and in fact he came right. off as like be- seeming like you said like dexter like right, like yeah. someone did a checkbox of like you know they looked at the dsm 5 or whatever under sociopath and they just checked all the boxes yeah. uh the other thing i think that school shooter movies tend to do is try to cycle and psychoan- psycho- <laughs> try to psychoanalyze the shooters to a fall yeah. <clears throat> where it's like oh well this guy shot up his school because because he was bullied or because he was poor or because um you know he was obviously an outcast and an outsider in ways x y and z right And I don't think that really does justice to the to school shootings either. I think that kind of takes something that's fundamentally irrational to rationalize it or explain it. Very, and I think this movie avoids both of those pitfalls.
0: I'd say that like psychoanalyzing the shooter in some way, like like too far, like you said, like to me that would it would almost like oversimplify the situation in a, in a paradoxical sense. Like it'll, it to Hmm. me that reduces down why people do this to, you know, singular factors or something that you can explain away, like very simply when it's these kinds of things happen for a lot of really complex, like mental and like cultural reasons.
3: Yeah.
2: I agree with that, Rudy. Anything else you want to hit here while you're still in the call?
3: Uh, I mean, not really. Uh, I uh, I made a lot of school shooting content myself. Uh, you sure have. <laughs> and uh, so yeah, I kind of, I really do appreciate the good school shooting. But uh, this movie, I think, captures all of the elements that I appreciate in uh, the media's coverage of school shootings, and that's basically it. I don't really have anything else to say. Great. (laughs) Uh, And uh, you'll still be in the background here probably
2: for a little while in case you want to jump in at some point.
3: Yeah, probably another like two or three minutes and I got to go. Cool.
2: Sarah, uh, you've been kind of on the outside looking in here for a little while. So I want to get you back in.
4: Well, I guess jumping back into that conversation. The only scene that I kind of question in regards to that psychoanalyzing or, or something, you're like trying to find a reason why they're doing it. Was that There was the one brief scene where they're showing the one shooter playing a video game where he's shooting people. And <laughs> I thought, you know, how they do that in the media where they try to blame it on the video games and violence and all of that, which we all know isn't really yeah. true. But yeah. uh, I didn't necessarily think that's what the movie was trying to do. But I thought it was interesting that they put it in there.
2: Yeah.
0: You know? Oh, yeah. I think personally when I saw that scene, I, I like it, it stood out to me too because i didn't like you said i don't think they were trying to make a statement about video games in some way but i think it would have been more effective i think to not focus on that so much or like cuz they it was a decently long time they were focusing on it mm-hmm. i think the thing that would would have been more compelling and i think more legitimately horrifying or, you know, effective would have been focusing on the fact that they bought those guns on a website.
4: Right? (laughs) I was, I was watching that. Are you kidding me? Not only did they order online, have it delivered to the house, but the guy let a teenager sign for it. (laughs) Yeah, that was it.
2: And I wonder how much of that, I mean, very clearly Van Zandt is thinking about Columbine um, oh, definitely. in this film, right? More so than any other school shooting. In fact, it's kind of, uh, and maybe we can talk about this a little bit, but it's kind of interesting the way that Columbine has become the prototypical school shooting in the public imagination, even though it was actually in some ways fundamentally atypical. I mean, the fact that there were two perpetrators is extremely rare. I guess that's true of Jonesboro as well, but Generally speaking, shooters are these really isolated, alienated, lone wolf types. Mm -hmm. And Columbine was kind of a weird instance where um, you had two shooters working in coordination with each other. And so anyway, I think that some of these details that Van Sant's using, including their ability to buy the guns online are cribbed from columbine a little bit but i could be wrong there i do think that god i was i mean this is what this was 20 years ago yesterday by the way we're recording this easter sunday um (laughs) and yesterday was i believe the 20th anniversary of the columbine shootings yeah yep so i think I believe that some of those loopholes have been closed in the past 20 years. Not that it's particularly hard to buy guns in this country still, but. uh, Yeah,
1: and I mean, not not only was the Columbine shooting atypical because there were two shooters, but the reason I think that it's become this kind of iconic gold standard, for lack of a better term, when it comes to school shootings is you had iconography to go along with it. It's it's an awful thing to have to reference Hitler and the Nazis, but, I mean, you give a uniform yeah, and you create a lasting image. The Columbine shooters had that black trench coat iconography all ready to go before the incident even occurred. They already had the trench coat mafia concept in their school. So they were already visually recognizable before anything even happened.
0: Yeah, and the, the picture... Like I mean, we've all seen it the picture of I think that it's um Dylan in like the in the cafeteria like holding mm. like a grease gun or something, like everybody yeah. you know recognizes that picture and instantly knows what it is
1: yeah
2: so. yeah that that's actually a really fascinating point that in some ways, we remember columbine so clearly because Dylan and Eric were experts in fashion and branding. <laughs> But <laughs> it's really appropriate. In, in, a, in a, a very film.
1: terrible way, yeah.
2: A film that's really obsessed in some ways with fashion and branding,
1: mm-hmm.
2: with how these kids have cultivated this kind of, per- and not just the shooters, but all of the kids in this movie have cultivated this kind of personal brand that becomes a stereotype. And so, yeah, and there's even, you were talking about Hitler, B boy. There's even the moment in the movie where they're watching this documentary about Hitler and the Third Reich. And the documentary scene that um, Van Zant chose for the movie is one where they're talking about the iconography of the Third Reich. And they're talking about how Hitler appropriated the swastika and how he appropriated the fascist salute from Mussolini. Yeah. And like when, you, when I watched it the first time, I'm just like, oh, yeah, you know, everyone knows that the Columbine kids were obsessed with the Nazis. It makes sense for them to include a scene where they're watching this Nazi documentary. But watching it the second time, I was really, like, caught off guard by exactly the scene that they chose. Like, it's not like they're watching Triumph of the Will, right? It's not, And it's not like they're just watching that usual generic film click clip thing where you you see the soldiers marching and they're throwing up the hail hitler it's a very specific scene from a documentary where they're talking about yeah. that yeah. Bit brand construction that as you said brandon that like construction of iconography so i thought that was really like on point
1: mm-hmm. and especially with the way that that dovetails into like we were saying the whole presentation of that's not about anything inside A person. It's all about how they carry themselves, how they portray themselves, how they dress, how they present themselves outwardly.
2: Definitely. So um, I'm trying to keep my promise to keep this under an hour. (laughs) So, does anyone have any last topics they want to talk about in the kind of general spoiler free conversation here before we do our quick little micro reviews?
0: Um, One thing I wanted to mention um, because going back to what you had said much earlier about time dilation and stuff i so i had seen this movie several years back and i did not remember until it showed up and and took me by surprise um that there are tiny little moments of slow motion
2: yeah yeah
0: um that like they feel as if they play into what you were saying of like the, the time dilation of tragedy and stuff like these little moments that just seem to last forever because something awful is about to happen.
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know what? It's funny that I had exactly the same experience when I watched this for the first time, I thought it was very much a real time kind of film and it's only in watching it the second time. Like you mentioned, there are a few shots Usually, as part of these like long montages, or not montages, but these long uh, tracking shots where they're behind uh, one of the students, where it suddenly kind of gradually eases into slow motion and then out of slow motion. And I think you're you're one hundred percent about that, right about that, Sarah. Brandon, want to jump in on this? <laughs> no,
1: no, I think I'm good.
2: Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so yeah we can move on to our reviews now um anyone want to go first sarah maybe
4: oh yeah i know i've been very quiet
0: today
4: <laughs> um are we doing our ratings now mm-hmm. we are and we can start talking about spoilers mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh I'll, I'll keep it short so like i said earlier i i appreciate the way It was filmed, I think, that was the the best part of this movie. Overall, this is not a movie I would watch again, partially just because of the subject matter, honestly. Because you know it's coming the entire movie, so there's all this build-up. And like you said about the way that it takes place over a short period of time, but it feels like it's taking longer. So it's just building up to this horrible moment when you know they're going to do it. Mm. Um, Which is good, it's supposed to be effective in that way. It's supposed to be making you feel dread. Um, but overall, uh, I don't. I definitely didn't love it. Whether or not the acting was intentionally bad, it still put me off. Uh, so I guess overall, I will give this a 5 out of 10. 5 out of 10.
2: Okay. Yeah. I think there's going to be a bit <laughs> of a split decision here, probably. Um, 5 out of 10 what, Sarah? <laughs> uh...
4: Five out of ten penises.
2: Okay, fair enough. Brandon?
1: Uh, Well, admittedly, it's been a long time since I've watched this movie. Like I was saying before we started the podcast, I remember watching this with you and Rudy back in the old days when it was relatively new. But the only reason that I'm able to do this podcast about the movie today is that there were so many lasting visual impressions from the film. And to me that's that's a sign of very strong filmmaking, yes, the subject matter isn't necessarily my cup of tea. it's definitely not something that I would normally seek out on my own to watch, and yeah, the acting not you know it's not gonna win any Oscars for acting, but like I said, I feel like a lot of that is very intentional because of builds into that portrayal of. The shallow nature of teenage life and teenage existence but along with that the time dilation the the visual elements i still have strong impressions of of those white hallways yeah i've i've got to give it i'm gonna go four out of five vultures cool (laughs) on this
2: one um mika so
0: in a sense I, I'm surprised I did. I, I really did not expect to like this movie a whole lot um, because I don't remember liking it the first time I saw it. But I think seeing it in the new sort of his, like cultural moment we're in made it hit a lot harder because I, I'm not old enough to have been around when Columbine happened or the aftermath or whatever, because I'm only 23. So I was like really young and. Um, But now watching it like when school shootings have become almost mundane to a degree or mass shootings rather like it's this movie ruined my day like (laughs) briefly like it it the last 20 minutes were some of the most terrifying like stuff I've seen in a film in a while like I was like that feeling of like just electricity like in my skin that i couldn't shake like the entire entire time it was very very um affecting and i agree with the the filmmaking being very um also surprisingly compelling i really appreciated all of the long tracking shots i didn't expect that kind of um presentation overall especially considering how the the ending of it was probably some of the most affected I've been by a movie in a long time. I'd, I'd give it a 4 out of 5.
2: Great, great. Um, yeah, I, I really like this movie. I liked it the first time I saw it, and I think I appreciated it more now, seeing it probably about 10 years later than I originally did. As everyone else has already said, the cinematography is amazing. I really appreciate the like restrained like pseudo-documentary style that every once in a while Mm -hmm. like breaks stylistically just enough to remind you that you're watching this kind of artistic construction. I liked the um, presentation of the school itself as this kind of massive oppressive like edifice, like world into itself and the way that the shots really establish that. This school feels massive because you spend so much time like winding around through its hallways, like anchored right to the back of the character. A character, I also, one thing we haven't talked about yet that I really like about this film is just how gorgeous it is. Like, the first time I saw this, I'm pretty sure, and this is dating myself, (laughs) but I'm pretty sure I watched it from a VHS tape or maybe a DVD on an old standard definition TV, and I thought, oh, it looks fine, they're going for the pseudo-documentary look, that's okay. Watching it now, in Blu-ray, in high definition, like, some of these shots are fucking gorgeous. Like, there are a few shots that are just, like, fixated on the sky. You watch the sky turn from morning to noon to night, and it's just the the color, it's just the framing, it's just beautiful. Um, Yeah, that said, I was not a huge fan of the very, very end of the film. I don't want to spoil anything because we're not in spoiling spoiler territory i'm not talking about the shooting itself which i think is executed pretty well but there are a couple of moments near the end of the film that i thought didn't work (laughs) and for that reason um i'm going to give it four out of five vultures rather than like 4.5 or whatever i might have given it if it had ended on a different note
0: oh i should i guess if i i didn't label my uh my score i guess oh, yeah. i give it four out of five shotgun slugs
2: <laughs> there you go <laughs> <laughs> yeah so now we are moving into the um our closer dissection of the film so warning to anyone listening from here on out there will be spoilers it seems like most of us like this film so maybe if you're listening Pause the podcast, go find the film, watch it, come back to the podcast. Or if you don't care about being spoiled, whatever, you can keep listening. So, now that we're talking spoilers, are there any specific scenes that anyone wants to talk about?
1: Like I said, for me, it's been so long since I've seen it directly. So I'm going off a lot of memory here. But I recall... And correct me if I'm wrong, I recall the scenes where they're actually doing the preparation for the shooting mm-hmm. as being not necessarily powerful scenes, but they stood out because of the almost disorganization parallel to the organization. Yeah. Yeah, I, I remember a very messy room along with their very organized, detailed plans being put it, together
0: it, it like helps cement that idea that like you know even if these guys are, are planning to massacre a bunch of people they're still teenagers that mm-hmm. went to this school and that's part of what makes it so scary is you know realizing that even if these guys are about to go kill a bunch of people like that and you hear them like joke around and stuff like in the near as they as they approach the school or as rather as they're preparing to go to the school and it just makes it all the more affecting you know having these little moments where the movie reminds you that these guys are still kids essentially Mm -hmm.
2: yeah absolutely i yeah i agree with you about that there's and thinking about the two shooters it's kind of interesting i mean with what we what we were talking about before about the like shallow performative superficiality of these characters. one thing that I found interesting, and this is kind of facilitated, I guess, by having two shooters, is that one of these guys, the kind of long, lanky, skinny one, is pretty much 100% that. Like, he's 100% performative, and it's just the role he's playing is the role of school shooter, right? He's playing the role, and he's kind of gleefully playing the role of the kid who shoots up his school, even to the point where there's that moment where he has the principal pinned down, and he gives the principal this monologue, like, you know, (laughs) I, I don't remember exactly what he said, but basically, now you know better than to fuck with me, I'm gonna let you live, you know, but I wanna watch you run away. And then after he gives the monologue, he shoots the principal in the back. And I think on some level you could read that as well, this is just a callous kid, you know, he was toying with him. But I also feel like it's almost like those are two scenes that he wanted desperately to play out. And he wanted to be able to play out both of them, even if they were incoherent and didn't fit well together. You know, he wanted to be able to have the moment of power over his principal, where he lectures him and then shows yeah. mercy, yeah. but he also wanted to be able to, to, you know, shoot the motherfucker in the back if he ran. <laughs> and that, <laughs> yeah, sorry.
0: Oh, um, another thing, like, another thing that stood out to me about his little monologue, which I don't know how it made me feel, but I remember him saying, there are others like me out there that kind of... stuck with me for Mm -hmm. some reason
4: it was a weird line it was a strange thing to say i thought
2: it is and i think in another film i would probably accuse a moment of that like i would probably look at a moment like that and accuse the filmmaker of editorializing Mm -hmm. um but as someone who's was actually just working on has been working for the past couple of days on a project where I fed a whole bunch of school shooter manifestos into a predictive text editor, that kind of moment. Isn't that unusual? Like there's always this sense where the shooters are isolated on the one hand and saying like, I stand alone, but also saying I'm not alone. You know, like this moment is supposed to stand Mm -hmm. as this kind of beacon to other, like, loser outcasts like me, this kind of call to arms or something. So that moment made some sense, I think. Well, with-
1: and, and in in hindsight too, it's, it's kind of a terrifying statement because it's been proven true in so many ways time and time again. Yeah. You look at how many of these mass shootings have occurred since Columbine and obviously Elephant was made after Columbine. So in the time between Columbine and Elephant, And the present, it's been proven again and again and again that there are others out there like that. There are other people that are processing the same thoughts and emotions and ideas and deciding to act on them. It's not an isolated incident. And thats it really is an endemic issue out there. Whether that was just, you know, like you said, it's kind of that power trip. That's that teenage wish fulfillment power trip. And even if it does kind of come off as shallow for the, for that shooter to be making that speech in that moment of just, Oh yeah, this is, this is what it should be. This is how it should go down. It really is indicative of this is the mindset of people that are in this mental state and in this situation that would consider doing something like that
2: right and certainly it has shown as you said itself to be prophetic um elephant was made in 2003 it's only four years after columbine Mm -hmm. uh and since 2003 i mean fuck we don't even have to (laughs) like like, (laughs) there's nobody listening who's like oh i don't know have there been any school shootings since 2003 and let me (laughs) me look on wikipedia (laughs) But, uh, oh, just to pick up the point that I was making before about the two um, the two shooters, and I swear to God, like G-Jack, after this, I'm going to let other people talk. Um, the second shooter, however, I don't think is that same kind of performative character. There's something else going on with this motherfucker, and it's slippery because the movie is so removed you know, and so kind of faux-objective in the way it presents itself. But there's something, he is not engaging in that kind of, like, there's something very meticulous about his approach to this, and something very kind of reserved and inscrutable about his result, his approach to this, that make it seem like there's some more depth to that character, even if it's a kind of fake, illusory depth. And of course, we also get that long montage where he's playing the piano, (laughs) you know? And of course, at the end of it, he flips off the piano, which I think was a really great touch. But, um, so that character, I think, is given this odd sense of depth. And when watching the movie, I wasn't sure what to make of that. So maybe I don't know what you guys think.
0: He, I, I noticed that too, that there's some kind of other, like, thing going on with him, especially which I I don't remember if this was a thing they planned or what, but like, I guess the swiftness of when he, uh, um, the other shooter comes back after shooting the principal to the cafeteria and he just gets shot. Like he, you know, he shoots the other guy like it, like mid sentence almost without, without even thinking. And then you see him unlike, uh, the other shooter who who had like antagonized the principal who was focusing in on like finding individuals and and you know harassing them and then killing them uh this other guy was running around i don't remember which one's which um but like name wise but he was running around like trying to maximize as many people as he could like, as to kill as many people as he could. Um, I remember the scene where he's... It's a shot of, like, facing towards him as he's running towards the camera. And he looks so intense and, like, focused on trying to pick out targets and everything. So it just... It felt like he was definitely more... To him, the massacre was more about the end result of killing as many people as possible rather than some kind of, maybe a different kind of role playing or in wish fulfillment than the other shooter had.
2: Yeah, I think that, I do think that may be true. I don't know. I'm having a lot of trouble getting my head around that character, definitely. Uh, And I think you're right. There's that moment where he executes his friend, um, where it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> I I don't know. Brandon, Sarah, do you want to get in on the question of this other character?
4: The main shooter?
2: Yeah, the main shooter, if you want to
4: I, I see him as the leader, definitely. I, Not that they said it, but I got the feeling this plan was his to begin with. And I, I wanted to talk about that scene too where he shoots his friend because they, they both were talking about, oh, well, we're going to die today. But did they know how it was going to happen? Did they have a plan of, you know, we're going to shoot each other or shoot ourselves or we're going to wait for the cops to shoot us? Um, so that was interesting because I, I felt like the uh, the blonde one was, was not expecting <laughs> to be shot mm-hmm. by his friend. I think he wanted to keep going, you know?
1: Yeah.
4: So, so that was interesting. I kind of saw it as a power move on the main guy's part. I think maybe he wanted to take more for himself at this point. Yeah. And maybe like you were talking about how he was being performative and I'm thinking maybe, maybe his friend did not appreciate that, you know? (laughs) So he was like, you know, I'm just going to take
2: you out. (laughs) Yeah. I I do think that moment was almost a moment of envy or frustration because we see the one shooter, the dark haired shooter wandering the halls in kind of frustration before that, like, He's obviously having trouble maximizing his kill count. He's obviously having trouble finding people to shoot. Um, and then he asks his friend, How did you do? And then his friend starts bragging. And then, you know, well, I got the principal. You know, I, I did pretty good. I got the principal. <laughs> you know, and then boom, you know, like that. And I have to wonder if there isn't wasn't an element of jealousy in that moment or of but it is like a lot of things in this movie, it's left unexplained unexplained and maybe yeah. to it's credit.
4: That's how I saw it too, that, that that's why he shot him. And then in the next scene, he does find more people to shoot. And then he suddenly becomes kind of performative too, in a way where he's mm-hmm. taunting them. So I think he's just so gleeful that he actually found more people who were hiding fairly well, all things considered.
2: Yeah. And I want to talk about that last scene, but I probably want to save it for the very end of the podcast, because we might as well end the conversation by talking about the last scene. Uh, And we should actually be getting close to the end of the podcast soon. Uh, I do think we're going to go slightly over an hour. Surprise, surprise. So I may have to do some editing myself. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But are there any other scenes that people want to talk about? here? There's
0: a scene for, for some reason I've been dying to talk about this, actually. The element the 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 one scene where there's like elements of homoeroticism that show up where like they're showering and the secondary shooter comes in with the main one as he's taking a shower and you know is talking about them you know oh i've never kissed someone blah, blah blah and we're gonna die today i'm i just don't know what to feel about that it feels surreal and just hard to pin down what was the aim there
2: yeah i'm glad you mentioned that scene because i kind of wanted to talk about it too but i'm not sure what i want to say about it it is as you said it's surreal and it's unexpected in a movie where otherwise the things that happen are very predictable in a way you know characters we've talked a lot about like how many of these students seem to be playing a role and they play these, these roles pretty rigidly. And that's a moment that's definitely a break in what we expect, right? Because when you're talking about like, like there's so much performative masculinity going in to that role of like school shooter. And when we think about school shooters, we usually think about these guys who are, not exactly hyper masculine in the way that like a jock would be hyper masculine, but who are certainly like unduly obsessed with masculinity. And to see that moment where there's cracks in that, where there's this weird that weird kind of moment of intimacy between the two shooters. I don't know. It's a really fascinating moment, especially since at the beginning of the film. There's that kind of discussion group conversation about about how do you know if someone's gay, right? <laughs> Where the kids are like, "Well, can you spot a gay person?" You know, Well, what if they're wearing a rainbow bracelet?" And they go on and on about like, you know, what does it mean to be gay?" And to see how that presented Arlie as a kind of framing scene, and then to have that moment where these characters who you would never in a million years expect of being gay have this moment. I I feel like those two scenes are very much in conversation with each other. Don't know
1: if anyone. Yeah. I I think some of that too has to do with, it's a weird sort of humanization moment in a lot of ways where you have that, that aspect of, you know, yes, these two are about to do something that is, undoubtedly monstrous and they have that moment of questioning their humanity but at the same time you wind up taking into account okay they're teenagers teenagers that are kind of preparing to have their life end well what does a lot of the teenage boys life revolve around it revolves around that first thought of well how am I going to get laid how am I going to lose my virginity all this stuff there's that element of becoming a man To that psychologically and I think some of that plays into it but there's definitely that question of you know is part of their isolation because they're dealing with their own sexuality issues it raises a lot of questions about the characters that don't necessarily need to be answered Mm -hmm. in a lot of
2: ways sorry. And then I think the film is careful not to answer. I think you're right that I didn't think of it that way, but it is almost a coming of age moment because like, what is every coming of age film fundamentally about? It's like, well, it's about losing your virginity. (laughs) And so to have these characters lose their virginity in this way to each other is a really interesting coming of age moment. And I think it is, as you said, Kind of like steeped in these questions about the character's sexuality and to what degree the bullying that we've seen them suffer or their feeling of being outsiders or whatever might be a function of their sexuality and their like coming to terms with their sexuality. Or maybe not, <laughs> you know?
0: I saw it more. It was weird, but I saw it more as like just a moment of vulnerability the filmmakers trying mm-hmm. to show where like where they're just experimenting like like they're doing something that isn't part of an, the experience to some you know teenagers like experimentation and exploring of oneself etc. Mm-hmm. Um, which might be uh, Gus Van's, Van's attempt to keep himself from completely like dehumanizing these, these characters, because, you know, at the end of the day, even if they did something um, like you had said, Brandon, absolutely monstrous, they're still people. They still have mm-hmm. desires and wishes and fantasies and all of that. Um, it's just that they pressures from a lot of different angles and, a lot of their own, I guess, isolation pushed them to do something absolutely, you know, horrible.
2: Yeah, definitely. I, I yeah, absolutely. So, I. Anyone else have a scene they really want to talk about? I have two. <laughs> the first scene and the last scene. Well, technically, the second scene and the penultimate scene, because the. Film is actually um, not uh, like bookended by two very similar shots of the sky changing from night to day or day to night, day to night in the first instance, and I think night to day in the second. Or, but anyway, it's it's bookended by these two really gorgeous shots of the sky, and I don't have that much to say about those moments except that they're beautiful, and they do really, in some weird way, even though they're just a kind of static shot of the sky as time passed captures something intangible about adolescence. Like looking at that sky at the beginning of the film, I felt something like an emotion that I like <laughs> really associate with adolescence that I couldn't put into words. But the two scenes that I really want to talk about are the first scene with the actual characters and the last scene with the characters. And that first scene is the drunk driving scene. And I think what's really incredible about that scene is if you go into the movie knowing this is going to be a movie about teenagers and this is going to be a movie about school shooters and the first thing you see is a car driving erratically, it swipes another car, you know, and then it pulls back into the street and it's, it's shifting from lane to lane like you immediately think, of course there's a teenager driving this car, right? <laughs> of course it, it's either some dumbass kid taking a driving lesson or it's the shooters themselves driving erratically on their way to the shooting, right? That's what you, where your mind goes. And then you discover that, no, actually it's the kid's dad who's driving and he's drunk off his ass. And it totally reverses your expectations about like the role of the parent and the role of the kid. And, I think that moment is really essential in framing the film because so much of this film is about kids like pretending to be adults and also like the vacancy or the void left by adults in their lives or the ineffectuality of the adults in their lives. I mean, one thing about this film is the way that the adults are shot, it's almost some fucking peanuts shit where they might as well be going wah, 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 wah behind the scenes, you know, <laughs> they're yeah. often yeah. kept out of frame when they're talking or shot from behind. And if you do see a, one of the adults or teachers framed in the shot so that you're looking at them head on, they're always fucking lecturing the kids, you know? <laughs> and, yeah. and, so the way the adults are presented as kind of absent on one hand or like hectoring or lecturing or ineffectual or whatever on the other is really interesting.
1: I think. Yeah. It's a, it's a terrible pun, but, uh, I, I definitely agree that that scene is very powerful because Mm -hmm. it's also very disarming.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, with regards to what you said about like the the adults always lecturing um the kids it does feel like it's it, they're they're meant to be this element of like there's all these alienating forces in these teenagers' lives and by distancing the adults like this where they're pretty much always show, showing up being either ineffectual or uh lecturing the kids they come off really strongly as this just this kind of bigger force in their lives that serves to belittle them or to make their lives worse in some way
2: yeah absolutely i definitely agree with you there sarah um brandon want to jump in at all on either the first scene or the how the adults are framed in this film
1: I. (laughs) No. There you go <laughs> I, I think <laughs> I think you summed it up pretty well. it's it's a good it's a good representation of the story that you hear time and time again when it comes to these these school shootings. The adults were there, but really, what did they do to change the course of how things were going to progress? They, they were there. They were superficially, because of course that term has to keep coming up with a lot of the way things were portrayed in the movie, but right. superficially they were there and they were aware of what was present in the situation, but they've done nothing to get involved and actually do something that might prevent the tragedy that's on the way.
2: Yeah, I think the ineffectuality... Of The adults in this film create a vacuum in some ways that these kids need to fill and that they fill with this once again to use a word we keep using performative adulthood that's inadequate and kind of uh, in some ways let sets the foundation for everything else that happens the entire tragedy so I want to talk quickly about the final well penultimate shot of the film because I don't like it.
0: (laughs) Oh, I don't
2: either, so. Uh, I I don't know. What what the fuck? I, I don't get it. I mean, it's weird for a movie that's so restrained up to that point to have this almost horror movie shot where the kid, like, finds the two of them in the meat locker, like, almost like in the fucking Shining or something and he's going eeny, meeny, miny, moe with the gun, which is a huge cliche, you know? <laughs> and you could say, well, you know, well, it's kind of this moment where he reverts to childhood in a little way it's a nursery rhyme. it's It, it struck me as really, really reductive, really silly in a movie that's so restrained and careful about how it behaves up to that point. I, I guess you could maybe, if you're being generous, say that, like the fabric between reality and fantasy has been totally breached at that point, and you're really in this kind of moment where you're indulging in his fantasy to an extreme degree. But I don't know; it just, it didn't work for me. What what did you guys think?
0: It like it felt like to me an extension of kind of that playful sadism that. Uh, was coming into play with uh the secondary shooter harassing the principal, but it like you said, I don't like this scene because it felt like it took that playful like sadism and like detachment to a level that felt tacky at best,
2: yeah, yeah, I agree it felt tacky and and fake, just
1: yeah, um see, I would agree with that, but I would counter with. I'm not a fan of that scene myself either. I think that could have been handled a lot better. better. But my interpretation of that is you think about how teenagers are. You think about that teenage mindset. The teenage mindset tends to be fairly immature. It doesn't fully grasp necessarily the concept and the gravity of everything around them. Then you add in that immense feeling of power. That comes with something like that. You have this tremendous influx of power as they're going through the process of the shooting. They've just gone, they've just gunned down so many people. And then they have this final, ultimate moment of power where it's kind of gone to their heads. And they wind up doing something that is just cartoonish and such an exaggeration of whatever power trip they're on it illustrates that immaturity to me
0: i think my big problem with the scene also like stems from the fact that it felt after they had already established the dichotomy between these two characters it ended up feeling uncharacteristic for Mm -hmm. the main shooter to be doing something like that like there's ways you could have done a very similar scene but without the nursery rhyme to it where the essentially the same things happen where he these people run into this freezer and he finds them there are a, a multiple there are multiple ways you could do that while still maintaining that dichotomy like you could have him just walking in, you know end it with him walking in you know another walking like tracking shot or something like that like it didn't need to go as long as it did
2: Yeah, I agree. And it didn't need to get as, like, falsely cinematic or as falsely, like, movie-like as it did either. But yeah, I I agree. Uh, Sarah, do you want to weigh in at all on the ending here before we wrap up?
4: Oh, yeah. Now, I felt the same way that it felt out of character. But at the same time, I correlated it back to his frustration because he wanted to kill more people and he wasn't finding them but his friend was so he shoots his friend and then he you know a hot minute later he finds these two people so I kind of throw it back to that where he was so frustrated and now he's taking it out in this really weird way that we wouldn't think he would I do agree I I didn't really like that scene either it felt out of place the way they did it but I'm, I'm kind of I'm kind of thinking that's what it had to do with, which is how he wasn't able to find people, and it wasn't going the way he thought it was. He thought this was going to be just a huge bloodbath, which it was. But I think he wanted more people to be in there, honestly. Mm-hmm. And when you when they were doing the shots, you you were seeing some bodies, but it wasn't a ton.
0: That's what it I wasn't. Was they they describe it like, oh, we're going to get them in like a choke point and just killed dozens at a time like when they're yeah. doing like when they have the map out and they're discussing how to like funnel people out of the school and stuff into certain
2: places
4: yeah so I think they were disappointed the the main guy was disappointed the other one I don't think he was yeah well, yeah
2: they I mean, and that failure kind of mirrors Columbine too, where they had these explosive devices they thought they were going to set off and they were, (laughs) and then they were going to hijack a plane and they had these like grandiose plans, but ultimately, you know, it all ended in the library with a suicide. And, And that's one thing also about the ending is the fact that it doesn't end on that note of like disillusionment or disappointment. Uh, I think it's kind of a missed opportunity that he does find someone else to kill. And it ends in this kind of self-indulgent moment. I think it would have been more interesting if it had ended with their suicides or if it had simply ended with a moment where they've killed everyone and the school is en- empty and they're looking around like, what the fuck what's left? <laughs> you know, Like what, like what, you know, what more is there? And you saw that disillusionment kind of set in. But that's not the film that we were given. So (laughs) it is what it is. Uh, Does anyone have anything they really want to say about the movie before we wrap up here? No,
1: I think I'm Um, set.
2: Okay, cool. Well, uh, Mika, Brandon, Sarah, it was great to have you on Rudy, wherever you are. I think he's getting his car repaired. Um, It was nice to have you on too. And uh, yeah, hell, I guess that's it. Uh, Thanks for listening. Oh, the oh, obligatory go to www.miserytourism.com and see the rest of our cool offensive content. Okay, bye.